Please turn your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In a big way, 1 Corinthians 9 serves as an illustration uh, for what Paul has just taught in chapter 8. Um, if you're here visiting with us today, we have been working through uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. So we were started at one, chapter 1, and we've been working our way uh, passage by passage through this book. And uh, now we're at chapter 9. This does serve as an illustration for what Paul just taught. So this is not a sermon uh, just about how you should pay your pastor. That's not what this message is about. This is an illustration about something else. Okay, so we're not going to get caught up and hung up on that. Uh, there had been a debate amongst the believers in the church in Corinth about eating meat that had been offered to idols. That was chapter 8. And, and while it was true that there was nothing wrong in and of itself, of eating the meat, it could be wrong if it offended other believers who had weak consciences and therefore hurt them, hurt their growth, hurt their spiritual maturity and their growth, and it hurt the cause of the ministry in that way. So let's go ahead and read the last four verses in chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 9, just to kind of remind us. So First Corinthians 8, verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And then so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, his conclusion, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, the point of this passage was, was not to make a new list of do's and don'ts, but instead to learn that as a believer, as a member of the body of Christ, I need to be willing to set aside my rights, things that I may know are perfectly fine to do. If I come to understand that my abstaining will be a, to the aid or the furtherance of the ministry of the gospel. Paul never said it was wrong to eat the meat. In fact, uh, he told the meat eaters that they were right. But he also said, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And now the thing is, Paul wasn't in Corinth anymore. He was writing them a letter, right? He's writing them a letter, probably from Ephesus. And if he ate meat that day offered to idols, uh, the day he wrote this letter, or if he ate like an impossible whopper or something like that, a veggie burger, regardless of what he's eating, they're not going to know. They're not going to see that. He wasn't able to set an example for them in that way. But there was one thing that Paul did do when he was with them, or rather, something he didn't do. Something that he could have done. Something that would have been right for him to do. Paul never received a salary. He never received wages for his ministry work in Corinth. 
Uh, Paul was not there now, as of the writing of this letter, to set an example of, of surrendering his rights by abstaining from the meat, but his example of abstaining from receiving wages worked just fine to help teach the church. So let's look now at chapter 9 together and see what we can learn from Paul's example of surrendering his rights. Chapter 9, verse 1. The Corinthians had said they were free. Paul says, am I not free? Did Paul have any less freedom than the Corinthian believers? Surely not. Paul says, am I not an apostle? Now this might sound like an appeal to Paul's authority. We might take it that way, but it really wasn't. The apostles were not called as apostles so they could lord over all the new churches they were planting. They were apostles because they had witnessed the resurrected Christ and had been commissioned by him, by Jesus, to convey the message, to convey their knowledge of the gospel. Um, In in his commentary on this book on 1 Corinthians, a writer named Anthony Thistleton said it this way, The apostles were not agents to be feared. They were not agents to be feared, but the agency through which the gospel was spread. That's what they were. The apostles were not the main event. They were ambassadors. People were to see Christ through them. But who they were to see was Christ. This, of course, involved the communication of the truth of the gospel, teaching about Christ, about his work on the cross for our sin. Uh, But conveying Christ also included, for all of them, suffering. Uh, Suffering a similar physical fate, uh, selflessly suffering persecution. And for nearly all of them, it also meant dying a martyr's death. So Paul, in saying, am I not an apostle? Uh, In saying that, he's not appealing to his authority, but instead to his direct knowledge of the gospel and his knowledge of Christ. Uh, The Corinthians had abused their freedom and had abused their knowledge to the detriment of one another. And now Paul begins this next line of reasoning by reminding them, I have freedom as well. And I have knowledge as an apostle. So listen up. Listen up and see how I, see how Paul utilizes his freedom and his knowledge. Uh, It's helpful to note here as well, Paul gives these two markers in the next part of this verse, these two markers of his apostleship. So continuing in verse 1, the first marker, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And number two, are you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Continuing in verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal, the confirming sign of the legitimacy, of the authenticity of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense. And this word for defense is where we get apologetics from. To give a reason, to give a defense to those who would examine me. So let's think for a second about these marks of apostleship. Uh, The apostles had to have seen the resurrected Christ. That's necessary for anyone who wants to call themselves an apostle. Have you seen the resurrected Christ? When the apostles were trying to replace Judas among the twelve in Acts 1, 21 and 22, they declared, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. 
This was a requirement. And then number two, the second mark that Paul gave the Corinthian church of his apostleship was them. It was them. Converts. Followers of Jesus. People who were dead and who are now alive. It was the church. The apostles witnessed the resurrected Christ. Then they gave witness to his death, his burial, his resurrection. And the church came to be. And churches, communities of believers who covenanted together to follow Christ together, came to be. This is what being an apostle meant. This was their mission. So with that being said, if someone in this day and age, you may have already thought this, if someone in this day and age calls themselves an apostle, watch out. Watch out. They have not seen Jesus. They haven't. And they are either misinformed, give the benefit of the doubt, or they may be trying to abuse a power and authority that is not theirs to have. And these people generally abuse their uh, fictitious power in order to manipulate people and or to accumulate personal wealth. Typically, this is tied to the prosperity gospel, the name-it-and-claim-it type of teaching that we often might see on television. Be careful. That message does not convey Christ. Those teachers who call themselves apostles are not conveying Christ. For whom? They're not, they're not conveying Christ. Where'd I go here? It is more... <laughs> I got too excited. That, that does not convey Christ. It is more, think about this, that is more anti-Christ than Christ-like. And isn't it also fascinating or startling, we should say, that so often these prosperity gospel false teachers who call themselves apostles point to their wealth in order to validate God's blessing on their lives. Look what God's done for me. Look how God's blessed me. Follow me. And what does Paul point to as the seal of his apostleship, as the proof of his apostleship? He was an eyewitness to Christ and converts, people, a church, for whom he gave up his right to wages in order to reach them. Money and miracles are not the sign of apostleship. Seeing the resurrected Christ, being commissioned directly by him, people coming to faith, enduring persecution, those were the signs of apostleship. And Paul was an apostle. So, sorry church, all you get is a pastor. That's all you're going to get. The church in Corinth had the apostle Paul for a time. And we might think, oh, lucky them. We might think that, right? And yet, still there were people there who wanted to examine him. And often by the measure of their own tastes and personal likes and dislikes, as we saw earlier in the letter. And we might think, why would anybody accept a false apostle today? Well, because of personal likes and dislikes, personal tastes and interests, and material desires. That's why. That's why. So, Paul was an apostle. 
and he was the church planter, if you will, of the church at Corinth, and led the church for its first year and a half uh, before moving ahead to any other city. So that's how long he was there with them, for a year and a half. And just for reference, to get a feel for this, I've been here now for two months longer, I looked it up, for two months longer than Paul was in Corinth, just to give you an idea, all right? And as a minister, as a laborer for this church, for the church at Corinth, looking now at verse 4, Paul could have said these things. Verse 4, do we, do we not have the right to eat and drink? In 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18, Paul instructs, church, instructs the church to be generous in providing for those whose role it is to preach and teach. And here Paul says, shouldn't we at least have the right to receive enough to provide for our needs just for food and drink? Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? The other apostles had wives. Jesus' half-brothers who served in full-time ministry, like James, for instance, in Jerusalem. They had wives. Even Peter, who had served the church in Corinth, which is probably why he was singled out here, Peter had a wife. If you remember, her mother was healed by Jesus. The provision for these men who were ministering the gospel included what would be necessary for them to take their wives with them, as he said, to take along a wife. Paul is saying that the right, the right for provision was to be given in such a way that while uh, when they were, people were able to serve and to receive what they needed to take care of themselves while having their wives along with them in their ministry, uh, which would mean their wives aren't uh, having to bring in their own additional additional income out of necessity, out of necessity, in order to provide for basic needs. So uh, this doesn't mean that a pastor's wife should never have a job. That'd be the wrong application here. It's not that they're not allowed to have a job. Paul had an outside job of his own choice. But I do think this means that a pastor's wife shouldn't be forced uh, to get a job out of necessity in order to provide for the needs of the family. Now, Paul was single. So this was a non-issue for him. Uh, But he and Barnabas didn't receive any money from the church while they were there. So Paul asked this rhetorical question in verse 6. He gives all these rights that they had in verses 4, verses 5. Verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Uh, Didn't we have a right to receive wages as well? And he gives these illustrations in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Uh, Here's the illustrations. Soldiers. Soldiers do not leave camp to work a night shift somewhere to provide for their needs and to supply their own armor and to buy their own weapons so they can go fight in battle the next day. That's not how that works. Keepers of the vineyard do not have to go to the grocery store to buy back the grapes they just grew. Farmers, shepherds, they don't have to milk their own animals and then make the cheese, but then have to go work another job to pay for the cheese they'd have to go buy. That doesn't happen. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Paul says, I just gave you some real life examples, but does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, and this is Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And we might say, what? (laughs) Muzzling an ox? Haven't talked about that lately. Haven't thought about that lately. Uh, What does that have to do with anything? 
But even in the context of Deuteronomy 25, all the laws around this verse have to do with human relationships. So even if you're reading Deuteronomy 25, you might think, why is that verse in there? It makes no sense that that's there. But the context dictates that this verse with oxen and treading grain and making sure oxen are given provisions for their labor, it isn't just oxen that God's talking about. The verse continues, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake, for people? The purpose of the command was not just for oxen. It was written for our sake. It says in this verse, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And what is the hope of the laborer? (laughs) What are they looking forward to? The hope is they're going to share in the fruits of their labor, right? They're going to share in the fruits. They're going to share in the literal fruits of the farming, the food they produced, or more likely in our day, we're thinking about getting the paycheck, getting a piece of the profits right through our wages. Workers look forward to their paycheck. And so they work with hope. And if there's no paycheck coming, what do workers do? They stop working. People work in large part for a paycheck, right? And, and if there's no paycheck, people tend to stop working. Now, here comes the question of values. Verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And if the Apostle Paul just asked you this question, you know what the answer is, right? You're at, you're at church. You've got to answer the right way. <laughs> Whether we always live it out is another thing, but, but we know what the answer is. The spiritual, obviously, is more value than the material. And then now to top it off, verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Paul reminds them the church had paid other preachers and teachers, but not Paul and Barnabas. So they have been paying people. So a summary of the first uh, verses here, of these verses. Paul is an apostle, and he ministered to this church from its birth. He and Barnabas had a right to receiving wages from the church, including what would have been necessary to bring a wife if he'd had one. Paying your workers is a universally understood principle. Four, paying workers is a commandment from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4. Five, people should be able to work in hope, in expectation of provision. Six, now Paul asks this question. What is of more value, the spiritual labor that was done in and for the church or the material things that could have been received? So, you know, like eternal life, victory over our sin, groceries, important, right? Netflix subscription. We have importances, right, of these different things. What is of greater value? What is of greater importance? And in 7, Paul reminds them the church had paid others. Like Apollos, for example, and Peter, presumably. But they did not pay Paul and Barnabas. He's not complaining. He's just setting all this up. Paul and Barnabas had a right to reap material things from the church at Corinth. But, according to verse 12, nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, We have not made use of this right. 
But we endure anything, anything, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In the last couple of chapters, Paul has said, there's nothing wrong with marriage, but, but singleness allows me greater freedom to share the gospel with the lost and, and to give extra time for discipling believers. Therefore, I'm willing to abstain. He says, there's nothing wrong with eating meat offered to idols in and of itself, but if it prevents me from being able to share the gospel or from being able to disciple believers, I won't do it at all. And now in this chapter today, he says, there's nothing wrong with getting paid to be a preacher, but if you can't hear from me, if you know I'm going to receive that benefit, then I'll forgo the paycheck every time. This is what Paul's saying. He saw the idea of receiving money or goods from any of these new converts in the churches he was seeking to see established as a stumbling block, as an obstacle in the way of the ministry. It was a stumbling block. Therefore, Paul worked as a tent maker. It says this in Acts 18.3. He worked as a tent maker to provide for his own needs in addition to the time that he gave to serve the church. Imagine Paul's calendar. And it says in other passages, he also provided for the needs of others through his tent making. And he met in Corinth. Remember? He met Aquila and Priscilla, right? And they were also tent makers. And that was a great ministry partnership that developed through that. So the question is, why would Paul have believed receiving material things from the church at Corinth would have been an obstacle? Why? What was the church valuing? How was the church valuing things so that Paul thought that receiving anything from them would have put a stumbling block in the way of them hearing from him or from Barnabas? Uh, we do know that this church in particular struggled with what we might say as the gimmies. They wanted their freedom. Give me my freedom. Give me my rights. Give me food. Give me drink. Give me a great entertaining speaker. We're going to see this later on in the book. Give me the best and coolest spiritual gift. I just want the coolest one. And it seems that what Paul didn't want is for these Corinthian people to see this new man coming to town, bringing a new message because, thinking that he was coming because he was looking to create a job for himself. Bringing a new religion because there was something in it for him, something material to be gained. I don't think Paul wanted anything to do with that. I think he wanted people to know that whether they believed or not, he wasn't expecting it to have any impact on his personal wealth or the lack thereof. And so in love, he willingly removed that potential stumbling block for the ministry of the gospel for the sake of these people. Verses 13 and 14 now, uh, sort of a second wave of argument, uh, specifically of people uh, making a living through ministry, which he hasn't really talked about yet. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, in temple service, they get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Uh, for example, Numbers 18, 21, it says this, to the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do. So Paul's referring to the Old Testament law in that. Now verse 14, in the same way, 
the Lord, Jesus Christ, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Luke 10.7, Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. Um, so this idea of Paul's right to be paid for his work in the ministry is also backed up by precedent in the Old Testament, in sacrifices and in tithes. And Jesus himself said it was the right thing to do. But, again, verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. The assumption might be, oh, Paul, he's writing us because we haven't paid him yet. He, he wants us to send him a check in the mail. In case that's what they're going to think, Paul sets that straight. And then he gives this passionate statement. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I'd rather die. For if I preach the gospel that gives me, uh, that gives me no ground for boasting. The proclamation of the gospel was the work of Paul out of obedience, but the effects of the gospel message proclaimed are not the works of Paul or any other proclaimer of the gospel. Paul could not look at the Corinthian church and say, look what I did. The effects of the gospel message proclaimed are the work of the grace of God. He is the one to be glorified for the fruit. So Paul sees no grounds for boasting in simply preaching the gospel. He says this, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Jeremiah felt the same way. Listen to Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah says, If I say I will not mention him, mention God, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's how Paul felt as well. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, meaning under no obligation, Paul says, I have a reward. But if not my own will, if, if, there, is a, if there is a contractual obligation, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. He's saying, I need to obey and share the gospel either way. But then, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. Paul's desire, clearly, in the sight of all, of my own will, preaching the gospel, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's reward came through the fact that he was able to give, that he was free and able to preach for no other reason than love and without expecting anything in return. And I think Paul is saying here, he believes here, that because of that selfless, sacrificial ministry, there was, as a result, a church. A church to whom he could preach. Now, what is Paul boasting about? What was that all about? It doesn't seem like something he would typically endorse, this idea of boasting. What kind of boasting is this? Well, first, the phrase, uh, grounds for boasting, it is one word in the Greek, so it isn't necessarily the boasting itself that Paul's referring to as much as the grounds for it, or the reasoning uh, he might have for boasting. And second, Paul isn't trying to boast it himself. In verse 16, he even said, preaching the gospel gave him no ground for boasting. 
Paul is referring here to something that is worth making much of, something that is worth glorying in. What is this thing that Paul believes is so worthy of excitement? If it isn't what he did, then what is it? Look back up to verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote this, Are not you, church, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense. Something to point to for those who would examine me. What was Paul's ground for boasting? Say, it was the people. The church. It was the church. The fact that these people who were previously lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. They heard the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then God did a work of grace. They repented, and they were now alive in Christ. They had become sons and daughters of God, saved from their sin, and growing in following Jesus. They, the God-given fruit of Paul's obedience to Christ's commission, they were the grounds for boasting. And the boasting was in the powerful grace of God. Paul was not boasting in his gospel-sharing abilities or his debate skills in which he wrestled these people into submission, wrestled them into believing. Paul is boasting in the work that God had done. There was now a church in the city of Corinth where there wasn't one before. Where people would have doubted there ever could be a church. That's grounds for boasting in what God has done. And with that, Paul is saying, I would rather die than not see any of you saved. I would rather die than to not see God work to build his church. I had a right. Paul would say, I had a right to get paid for working there with all of you. But I chose not to exercise my right for material or financial benefit because I would rather die than for, uh, for y'all to not hear the truth of the gospel, for there to not be a community of believers in the city of Corinth. And so we see with that, Paul's ground for boasting, his reason for glorying in what God had done, was in fact the same thing that served as his seal of apostleship. Paul believed that if he had come to Corinth looking for a payday, looking to get paid for his services rendered, the people would have seen his actions and perhaps he would have blended in a little too much with the locals. Does that make sense? He would have been behaving like a Corinthian, as people used to say back in that day. But the message Paul proclaimed was not of this world. It wasn't like anything else they'd heard before. And he was willing to sacrifice his right in order to remove the potential stumbling block, the risk of looking like so many other greedy, traveling, religious salesmen who, looking to pad their pockets, they were looking to pad their pockets and make a name for themselves. Paul wanted nothing of that. Paul sacrificed his right. He didn't want to risk having that look because he so desperately wanted the people there to hear the truth. To hear of God's love, 
to hear of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for their sin, to hear of his glorious resurrection. And he so desperately wanted to see God do the miracle of bringing spiritually dead people to life. That's what he wanted to see. And see the miracle he did. So now, here Paul is, writing a letter to the church in Corinth. A seal of his apostleship. His grounds for boasting in the Lord. A people whom he may have offended, who may have never listened to him in the first place, had he demanded his right. And the church writes, Paul, can we eat meat offered to idols? We can eat meat offered to idols, right? There's nothing wrong with that. We've studied it out and we know. We have knowledge and there's nothing wrong with it. And Paul's response, you're right, technically. But if it keeps you from being able to see God working in and amongst you, church, and even in your community, if it prevents you and the church from making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ, be willing to give up that freedom. Be willing to surrender your rights. Paul says, just like I did. Just like I did. Remember, Corinthians, many of you may not have seen, may not have even been interested in listening to what I had to share had I demanded my rights. And because I didn't, and because God graciously gave you salvation and life, here you are. There is a church in Corinth. And I think we could all agree, God didn't put a church in Corinth or in Mount Pleasant to argue about what they could and couldn't get away with, what we can and can't have. He put us here to keep making maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. So, First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant. <laughs> what we value the most is what we will call our gain. What we value the most is what we'll call our gain. Let's value the spiritual over the material. Let's value the souls of people over possessions, earthly pleasures, and personal tastes. Let's be willing to see ourselves as living sacrifices instead of looking at others as potential resources for our entertainment and gain. If we will continue in this Christ-like mindset, we will be able to serve others with love and joy and be able to rejoice and glory in the work that God is doing. Reward. It's only when we demand our rights, when we value the material over the spiritual, when we value our possessions, our pleasures, and personal, personal taste, when we value our entertainment and have a distaste for sacrifice, uh, then even when we see God working, we won't glory in the abundant grace of God. We won't rejoice in seeing souls snatched from the fire. We'll just worry about how things are going to change or if I'm going to lose my seat, <laughs> or how much harder it's going to be to teach those extra children in junior church. There's no joy in that, in that mentality, is there? But listen, it's hard for resentment and for bitterness to hang around for very long where Christians are willing to forego their rights and their preferences for the cause of the gospel. 
to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And when we are willing to lay down our freedoms, when we're willing to surrender our rights, when we happily, selflessly give of ourselves for the eternal benefit of others, and then we see God working in the lives, we see that grounds for boasting, (laughs) we get to glory in God's goodness, We get to glory in God's grace in our lives and in the lives of others. We get to rejoice in the fact that God is using us to build his church. And that is a great reward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this example in Scripture. We thank you for the truth shared here of of our value. Lord, I pray that we as a church would see as a reward the freedom that we have to sacrifice, to say no to some desires that we may have, to be willing to surrender our rights in order that people might hear the gospel in order that others can grow and flourish. God, help us to be wise. Some of these things are gospel issues and some of them aren't. Be with us even tonight as we consider the conscience and how that affects this discussion. And Lord, uh, may we uh, seek in all things to be pleasing to you to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to continue to fulfill the commission that you've given to your church to make disciples. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.